The world of literature is full of famous detectives. Sherlock Holmes, Miss Marple, Perry Mason, Philip Marlowe, Trixie Belden, Encyclopedia Brown, Nancy Drew, The Hardy Boys, Quirmer and Strike, Claudia Kishi. That's right, I said Claudia Kishi. But Claudia Kishi of Babysitter's Club fame doesn't have to solve mysteries on her own. In fact, as a member of the BSC, she doesn't have to walk alone ever because she has the support of her friends. On episode 160 of SSR, we, for the first time ever, venture into the world of the Babysitter's Club Mysteries subseries. More specifically, the 11th installment, Claudia and the Mystery at the Museum. In this book, Claudia takes the lead on tracking down the culprit when some rare coins go missing from the museum that's recently opened in Stony Brook. There's also a weird B-plot where one of Mallory's younger sisters decides that she wants to become famous. But that's just the babysitting of it all. Over the next hour, my guests and I have a great time chatting about her childhood love of all things Babysitter's Club and the extent to which the BSC mysteries may even have influenced her career as a thriller author. We discuss how cool it is to see Claudia as the star of this book. We talk about the totally ridiculous aforementioned B-plot, which is, again, totally ridiculous. We discuss the author's use of pretty classic mystery storytelling and the bizarre nature of relationships between kids and adults in the Stony Brook universe. We also share our personal experiences with visiting museums, and I reveal the details of a weird board game obsession I had when I was a kid. My guest today is Andrea Bartz. Andrea Bartz is a Brooklyn-based journalist and the author of The Lost Night, The Herd, and We Were Never Here. Her work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Marie Claire, Vogue, Cosmopolitan, Women's Health, Martha Stewart Living, Red Book, Elle, and many other outlets, and she's held editorial positions at Glamour, Psychology Today, and Self, among other publications. Follow Andrea on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at Andy Bartz, and on Facebook at Andrea Bartz Author. You can learn more about her work at andreabarts.com. This is actually not Andrea's first SSR rodeo. She joins me all the way back on episode 43 for a conversation about the Egypt game, and in the conversation you're about to listen to, you'll hear us chat about all the things that have happened since then and how cool it is to have reconnected now. I am so excited for Andrea and all the success she's had with her best-selling books, and it was such a treat to have her back on the show. You can learn more about all things SSR by following along on social media. SSR is at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can check us out on Facebook at the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. We also have a dedicated Facebook page for the SSRBC, a totally free book club in which every month, incredible teams of volunteer leaders facilitate conversations about throwback reads that have previously been discussed on the podcast. In September, the SSR Book Club is reading Sarah Dessen's This Lullaby and Katherine Patterson's Jacob Have I Loved. If you're not big on Facebook groups, the SSRBC is also on Slack. Plus, there's a live Google Hangout discussion group for every book, too. Learn more and join us at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. Don't forget, it's free. If you wouldn't mind investing a few dollars every month to support SSR, which, as a reminder, is an independent podcast that I produce as a one-woman show, you can do that via Patreon. Patreon is a platform that connects independent creators like me with superfans of the content they make. As an SSR patron, you can commit $1, $5, or $10 per month. In return, you'll get access to our super fun Patreon community, along with tons of fun perks. 
Learn more at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or visit www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. I genuinely enjoy putting together Patreon exclusives like newsletters, reading recap videos, and grown-up book clubs, and it's been a ton of fun getting to know the patrons in a cozier setting. I am so grateful to each and every one of them, and I would love to welcome more people into that community. As this episode drops, it's practically September, and if you're anything like me, you have a lot of books on your TBR for the new month. Audiobooks can help check some of those titles off the list. With Libro.fm, you can support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks are exactly the same as the ones you would get from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Happy listening! Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Andrea. Welcome back to SSR. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Allie. I was saying to you when we first started chatting, like, I feel like it's been like three years, but you said you're like, I don't even think it's been two years. Like, it hasn't been that long, but just, it, I mean, it's like a dog year situation where I just, time has warped and it feels like it's been so long since we talked, but you also have had like so many exciting things happening with The Herd and your new book, which I can't wait to chat with you about at the end of the episode, but all that to say, it's very exciting to have you back. Yeah, I'm so glad to be back. Yeah, anything in the before times just feels like, oh, we were so young back then. We had no idea what was coming to us. Exactly, exactly. Maybe it was better that way when we were just naive people talking about the Egypt game back in 2019. Blissfully ignorant, chatting about the Egypt game. Those were the days children ourselves chatting about cultural appropriation and you know (laughs) those kinds of things listeners i'll be sure to link to that episode in the show notes because yes andrea did join me for an episode about the egypt game apparently in 2019 but today we are talking about claudia and the mystery at the museum which is the 11th book in the babysitter's club mysteries series and i am pretty sure that i never read any of the babysitter's mysteries. <gasps> I uh, gasped. I Shocker. know. I know. So tell me about your connection to this series. Like, were you big on Babysitter's Club in general? Or were you more of the mysteries reader? I want to know all that because you actually suggested this title to me because clearly I was not familiar. Because you were missing out in a big way. Obviously. I was a total Babysitter's Club stan from the start. I remember I started with Babysitter's Little Sister, which was about Christy's sister or stepsister. Karen. Um, And I voraciously, oh, thank you. And voraciously read through those and then moved on to Babysitter's Club. And I loved them all. And I, my favorite ones were the mysteries and the, I want to call them like chillers or something. They had these like, I could completely be remembering this wrong, but 
at the time, I really liked things that had like a little bit of a creepy element or a mystery element. So, you know, at the same time I was reading Babysitter's Club, I was voraciously reading all of the Goosebumps books. And so it was really exciting when there was like a little bit of overlap. And I was just such a sucker for book marketing. So like the like super, the like super Babysitter's Club books where they had like different narrators for every chapter were so fun. And I had the hardcovers that had like, you know, letters you could open and like postcards you could read and interactive stuff. I just loved the whole world. I was completely taken in. I erroneously believed that like Anna Martin wrote them all and somehow was very prolific. And I honestly, I thought that by the time I reread this, I would figure out why this one stuck in my memory so unbelievably clearly. But rereading it, I don't know. It's just for some reason, I remembered every detail correctly down to remembering specific lines. It's weird. That is a little weird because not only did Andrea suggest to me like, oh yeah, like we should probably do a Babysitter's Club mystery. Like, no, the email that I got was, we must do Babysitter's Club mystery number 11, Claudia and the mystery at the museum. So there has to be, there's something going on here for you. And there was a moment that I was like, did I hallucinate that? Like, is that just some false memory? And then I Googled and I was like, nope, that's the one. Like exactly the setup that I remember. That's so interesting because I did read, like I dabbled in the Babysitter's Club when I was a kid. I think contrary to like the persona that I've maybe developed as the host of this podcast, I was not like drowning in Babysitter's Club books as a kid. In fact, I've probably read like more of them hosting the show than I did when I was actually a tween myself. Interesting. But I just don't think I ever made it to the series extensions. Like I think I read a couple of the super specials and maybe one or two of the Little Sister books. But I, I think I was like vaguely aware of the mysteries just from Wikipedia that I've done for these the other episodes. But yeah, this was my first my first encounter. And I double checked because I was like, I want to make sure. And I, you know, of course, because this was a book published in 1993, there's a handy uh, list of titles in the back of the book on this really Love nice it. like brown beige paper that all of you I'm sure can picture exactly as maybe you can hear the pages turning. But yeah, I don't, I'm not even familiar with these titles in the mystery series, and they're all very dramatic sounding. The first one is called Stacy and the Missing Ring. And then number two is my favorite. It's just called Beware Dawn, exclamation point. Mallory and the Ghost Cat. I guess a cat who's a ghost. Interesting. You see why I would gravitate towards this. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I mean, honestly, it tracks with like your writing career a little bit. Christy and the Missing Child, which doesn't sound like a mystery so much as it sounds like you kind of failed at your jobs. Sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, that's a nightmare more than a mystery. Marianne and the Secret in the Attic, the mystery at Claudia's house. Dawn and the Disappearing Dogs, also a nightmare for me. Jesse and the Jewel Thieves. Uh, and yeah, this, this list only gives us the first eight. And then, of course, we jump to number 11, which is the one that you and I are talking about today. But before we get into any Babysitter's Club talk, I, I have to ask, because this is just like a, a requisite question anytime we talk about this series, which babysitter do you most closely identify with? Uh, I'm such a Christy. Mm-hmm, and it's annoying. I know. <laughs> That's why we got like to I'm friends other. with, yes, I'm friends with a lot of like, then Christie's too and like you know you wanted to be Stacy or Claudia and you were like maybe I'm Marianne she's like sweet and whatever but I was a Christie to the max I was like whipping people into shape and had ideas and really frustrated when other people weren't staying organized like guys we're putting on a play and no one else is taking it seriously but me I started as a Marianne when I was a kid and then I I 
evolved into more of a Christy. You blossomed. I blossomed <laughs> into, into a Christy. Christy. Yeah, I think I'm like Christy with like a side of maybe a little side of Marianne at times. Like when I get stressed, maybe I go a little bit more Marianne. Yeah. And I, I would like to be a Claudia. Maybe sometimes I have my moments, but really I'm a Christy 98% of the time. But I'm glad we share that in common. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It's like the precursor to the, like, which Sex in the City character are you? Yeah, exactly. It's a necessary conversation. <laughs> so this book opens, and the thing that I really like about it is that we are coming into this world of Stony Brook with Claudia really getting to, like, be the boss. And she is really, like, showing us and her characters in the fictional world of Stony Brook what she knows and what she's passionate about, and that is art. We see her interacting with her sister Janine, who, like, Ugh, eye roll. Obviously, if you read these books and you were growing up, you just like couldn't handle Janine. Although in hindsight, like she was pretty cool. Like I appreciate how sweet she is. I know. She's actually probably cool. Yeah, I feel badly that she got such a bad rep when we were kids. But I do appreciate that like for once in this whole series, potentially, Claudia is getting a chance to be a little smarter than Janine, dare I say, in something. And she's like, she's telling Janine about this new museum that's opening up. And like, she knows all about the artists that are being exhibited. Like, go Claudia, this is what we've been waiting for. Yes, it is her world. She is owning it. She's like reading the New York Times, and like blowing Janine's mind, looking for this, this you know, the, the write-up in the art section. Yeah, and she's pretty like powerful throughout. Like I did notice she has a ton of agency through the entire book. Which like is something, you know, that as a writer, a lot of a lot of writers struggle with and it's not always easy to do. But like she is like always in charge and deciding what to do next and like taking action and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and it's also not a side of her that I think we see that often in the books. Like I think people look to her as like she's cool and she's fashionable, but I I don't know that people always take her seriously in the series. Right. And even here you see that people are like a little skeptical about taking her seriously. Like Janine is sort of making fun of her about reading the paper. And then when Claudia proves that she knows what she's talking about, Janine says, you sound like an art critic. How do you know all that? She looked very impressed. (laughs) Even later in the book, Claudia's friends are like a little slow to buy into Claudia's expertise, but she always gets there. And it was nice to see because often I feel like she's relegated to this role of like, she's the cool, funky one. Right, exactly. And like reducing her to her clothes. But yeah, she really shines in this. Like it's all sort of about the art world and like her knowledge with and sort of fluency with like art and different artists. And like, it's really fun. Did you like to go to museums when you were a kid? Like, do you like museums now? What's your museum vibe? I really liked museums as a kid. I grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee. And so going into Milwaukee to go to the public museum, which had like the rainforest exhibit and the, you know, the dinosaurs and all that stuff was always super fun. And yeah, now as an adult living in New York, like I probably haven't been as good about it as when I first moved here 13 plus years ago. But there's something still really magical about going to museums and sort of getting lost in the inner rooms and just like getting just really taken away by this art or transported or sort of sucked into different eras or ancient civilizations. So I think it is a really cool setting for this book too, because museums do have this sort of instantly magical feel, I think. What about you? Are you a museum person? Yeah, I'm not proud of this, but I'm not really. I've never been great at museums. I'm not I'm not great in crowds. 
And growing up, there are a couple of museums in Philadelphia, and I grew up about an hour away from Philadelphia that I really enjoyed visiting. There's a museum in Philly called the Please Touch Museum, which actually reminded me a lot of the museum that we see in this book because it's really geared toward children and everything is meant to be interactive. And then there's the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, which is really cool. It's like sciencey and also very interactive. But as I got older, and I feel like the inclination was more to go on these field trips that were super serious and like very heavy in art. I don't know what happened. Something shifted. And I don't know if I had like a bad experience at a museum, but I just sort of like lost I like lost it for museums. I went to a lot of museums with my grandmother who listeners know that I was very close with and she was the smartest person I've ever met, but she was like, like you couldn't go to a museum with her and skip a single placard. Like she would make you read everything and she would like stand over your shoulder and make sure that you were paying attention to everything. And I think maybe that, maybe I, maybe we overdid it a little bit on the museum thing. I wonder if that's part of what I, why this book stuck with me so intensely is like, I think a lot of people have that idea of the museum, of a museum, any generic museum. It's like this very serious place and you have to read everything and you're there to learn. And it's sort of like this, like standing school. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so walking through it and seeing it through Claudia's eyes just made it so alive. Like one of my favorite sections of the book as a writer was when she was just describing what was in every room and just making up these details and you get to shake hands with a skeleton and you get to like go through this dark you know mole tunnel and it's completely black and you have to feel your way through and she's just describing all of these little interactive games and 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 things and it was fun for me to read because I could tell it was so fun for the author whatever like work for hire author they hired to do it it was so fun for them to write it and to make these things up and so I just love like I don't know, sort of the PSA to kids, like the service it was doing to say like, look, museums aren't dodgy <laughs> and they aren't all like, you know, exhausting and educational and stiff and square and boring. And instead, yeah, it sort of planted the seed of like, it can be really cool whether you're learning about science or seeing a mummy or just taking in sculptures. Um, and we kind of hear that a few times when Claudia's friends or, you know, the kids she's babysitting for sort of express doubt that these sculptures that she's obsessed with could actually be cool there's a time she like drags Stacy into it and then Stacy actually says like wow I didn't think I was gonna like this but this is really neat and it just sort of felt like this nice little you know coded like PSA for for museums which I don't know maybe impacted me in ways I didn't realize Yeah, it did make me want to give some museums another try. I mean, we recently moved back to Philly. And so I was like, hmm, hmm, maybe we should go back Hmm. to some of these museums once I feel up to it. There's so many great museums, specifically in Philly, too. Yeah. The Mutter Museum and the Mummer Museum. Just those two alone. You got to go to both. They're so nuts. My husband's like obsessed with the mummers. Like I think he's just fascinated and they are, it is a very fascinating subculture that I should probably learn more about now that I live here. But yes, maybe, maybe I'll go to some more museums. I will say Claudia's fascination with art in this book reminded me of a board game that I used to play when I was a kid. And I wonder if, if you even know what I'm talking about. I feel like this was sort of a niche board game, but it was called Masterpiece. Did you have this game? I don't think so. How did it work? Okay, so listeners, if you had Masterpiece, I need you to DM me or send me an email because I need to know that I wasn't the only seven-year-old who was obsessed with this like literal art auction game. Like this was not a game meant for kids. I don't even know 
how it found its way to me. Probably my grandmother gave it to me because she was like, oh, children would find this fun. But it, it was like on every turn, like there was like a mini easel and there would be cards with like famous works of art and you would put it on on the easel and then players would bid. I don't even know how you win. Like, I don't really remember what the goal was. I think you could probably like steal art from each other and like, you. I don't know. But we played it all the time and even <laughs> as i'm talking about it now like I'm like how is this fun i can't even explain why i was so addicted to it but it was it was a staple in my house for a long time and i do feel like claudia would have enjoyed it that also now feels like something that there's probably an app for that feels like some game that's like you know build your calorie like totally. put, choose art for the walls like make deals like one of those sort of like passive slow like soothing games like i'm sure that exists in some other form now yeah, it's probably super fun, actually. Maybe I should yeah. look into it. Maybe that'll be fun. So before we really dig into the actual mystery that Claudia is dealing with in this book, I, I just want to address the sort of like B-plot <laughs> that goes on in Claudia and the mystery at the museum, because I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on it, but it did make me laugh. And it also made me annoyed because I kept thinking that it was going to tie into the mystery. And because you said that you like remember every detail of the book, I assume that you didn't think that but it was so unrelated to what was actually happening in the book that I was like, they have to be, I was like, this author has to be planning to bring this all together at the end. And then nothing happens. No. And I'll tell you, I didn't remember anything from the, the B plot until I started reading. And then as soon as we saw the little girl like get into the booth and record a video of herself singing over the rainbow, somewhere over the rainbow, right. I was like, oh, I remember this story freestanding and I remembered lines from it I remembered like as soon as that started to happen I remembered that subplot I did not remember being part of this book and I do wonder I mean you've read more than I is this the case with all the babysitters club books where like there's a whole b-plot about other characters babysitting a child and what happens with them and it has nothing to do with the main story I think what's happening here is that we need to stay on track with babysitting Right. And at the end of the day. <laughs> at the end of the day, babysitting is always our number one focus in this series. I've developed, like, I always joke, like, always be babysitting in Babysitter's Club. Like, it doesn't matter what else is going on. I mean, even here, the first time Claudia goes to the museum that she is so personally invested in, it's to take children. Like, she is always babysitting. These girls are always babysitting. Even bringing children to the museum at which this whole mystery will unfold is not enough babysitting centric content for a true babysitters club book. So I think that, again, whatever author for hire they brought in to do this series, maybe under the advisement of Anna Martin herself was like, okay, we have to figure out how to have some serious babysitting. And that can't happen during a burglary at a museum. So we need to just throw the girls in some other ongoing childcare situation, so that the readers will remember what's really important here. I think you're right. I think mm -hmm. you're right. But it was just, it was a little like jarring as a yeah. reader because I was sort of reading it as an author and noticing craft and noticing how they set up the mystery and push things forward. And yeah, we would just take these diversions into the story of this girl who really wants to like have a career in showbiz. And every time it was sort of like, what are we doing here? Get back to the mystery. Yeah, it really took me out of it, especially because like to your point about craft, which is like a very kind word, like there were no transitions. 
occasionally we would get like one of those charming little diary entries written handwritten in, yeah, yeah. In the handwritten text or the handwritten font and that would sort of be a reminder to me that like okay we're going back into babysitting land but there was no there were no transitions like between paragraphs other than that to indicate that there was any connection between what was happening in the museum and what was happening with the pike family listeners to sum up basically one of mallory's like many younger siblings claire has decided that she is going to get famous after filming a video of herself at what is like the most 90s kind of store I can imagine which is like a little kiosk in the mall where like you put on costumes and you get a video of yourself that you can then watch on VHS at home and she as you mentioned Andrea is singing somewhere over the rainbow and it is hilarious because the girls are babysitting and they show up there and the kids are like oh by the way like we're having a performance for the whole neighborhood which Christy being Christy is like okay, I'm sorry, what? Like, I'm the boss here. But Claire really wants to show her video. And I just, I mean, there were some moments with her that genuinely made me laugh. Claire says, can you discover me? And then she says, how am I ever going to be discovered? Nobody important is ever going to come to my rec room. And like, that was genuinely funny to me. Yeah, there definitely were some moments within the babysitting part that was like, oh, that is how little kids are. And that's really cute. Yeah. And I think Christy or one of the babysitters is like, who on earth is going to discover her here? Like so-and-so's mom? <laughs> like, what is he thinking? Yeah. Right. Like, what are you thinking? Yeah. But then hilariously, Claudia is like, oh, I can connect you to two other child stars that we've two, Two, not just one. Like, if the babysitters were working in 2021, their testimonials page would be so impressive because they would have two child stars there. That's such a good point. Yeah, they would, I mean, their Instagram presence would be completely off the chart as well. Yeah. And and it's funny too, because reading this, this is the first time I went back and read any of this and obviously more than 20 years. And like, there were just so many names. This whole book was like obsessed with naming names. Yeah. And like describing in great detail, like everyone's family. And this person used to be a part of the babysitter's club and this person moved away. But there were just so many names flying around that I was like, I forgot about like, Danny Masters or whatever the kid star's name and like just just these little cameos of like oh god there was a whole book about him wasn't there yeah I mean they they have a lot of experience these babysitters it's true and the book the series has like a universe like it has a complex web of characters that they like come back to in you know that they they mention and, and you know maintain sort of the internal logic to all of their books it's really it's a feat It is. It is. There are just so many books and there's such deep history. Okay, so that's kind of all I have to say about the B-plot. But I did want to get it out of the way and just establish that I found it very confusing. And while, yes, relevant to the babysitting theme of the series, generally like unnecessary, especially because the mystery at the museum was pretty cool. It was really interesting. Yeah. And I was funny interested in that and didn't need any of this other nonsense. No, sorry, Claire. Sorry, Claire, but I didn't need it. Okay, so... When Claudia brings the kids, of course, because always be babysitting, to the museum, there's a burglary. The alarm goes off. It's all very dramatic. And she has to, like, protect the kids to make sure that they don't get scared. And then she brings the news back to the club. And she's like, guys, there's something kind of crazy happening at the museum. And we need to figure out what's going on. Because Claudia is really worried that maybe the museum will get shut down. Because she, like, I think for her, it's like something cool is finally happening in Stony Brook. And we can't let it disappear, which I appreciate. So they, of course, take it upon themselves to solve the mystery. And because I don't have any other context for the mystery series, like, I'm not sure if in book one of Babysitter's Club Mysteries, they were like, we are going to now be detectives, or if this is just something that naturally 
develops from their club meetings. Do you remember that at all? I don't remember that either. But what I did find interesting was that they didn't just say we need to figure this out. They said we need to solve the mystery like 30 times. Like, I mean, hats off because from a storytelling perspective, like they have made their their wish and their driving force, like the character's driving force, abundantly clear. But they say over and over, like, no, we all agreed that we need to solve this mystery. And at the meetings, they're kicking around ideas and they're frustrated because they're not any closer to solving this mystery. And it was just, I don't know, it was very sort of charming. And they bring up Claudia's love of Nancy Drew books a few times. And it explains why she thinks that she as a 13 year old, like has the ability to solve this and like the authorities can get out of the way. But no, there was just something very charming about how they just instantly all decided and agreed as if they'd have had a vote that like they were going to be the ones to solve this mystery. Yeah, I love your note about Claudia's obsession with Nancy Drew. She says, my Nancy Drew books have taught me to notice things like that, especially when a crime has taken place. It's important to pay attention to all possible suspects. I looked around and checked out everybody else in the courtyard as the guard began escorting us back into the museum, but nobody looked especially suspicious. So again, like Claudia is getting to show off what she knows, not only in terms of the art world, but because she probably knows a lot more about solving mysteries than any of the other girls because she is so obsessed with Nancy Drew. But I kind of love the idea that like maybe in book one somewhere, Christy was like, I've decided that we need a sideline solving mysteries. <laughs> uh, but maybe we that didn't do it all. Yeah, we do it all. Just reminds me of the Mary-Kate and Ashley mystery movies where she's like, we'll solve any crime by dinner time. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much. Equally cute. So initially the main suspects as far as claudia can tell are a bunch of brownie girl scouts that were at the museum and they're kind of like joking about this throughout but i think christy's serious like i think christy is genuinely suspicious of the brownie girl scouts because every time they're talking about potential suspects christy's like and the brownies lol but like i'm like i don't know that you're i don't know that you're joking (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah maybe she doesn't trust them it's possible Yeah, they do a really interesting, I mean, every mystery needs a suspect. So they do a very like on the nose, like by the book, she like looks around and that's that part that you mentioned. And like she names like these are the five other people there or however many and like, then she brings them up throughout is sort of like looking at each one and, and casting suspicion on them. Yeah, so it's the Brownie Girl Scouts and then this man that is very memorable to her because he has one blue eye and one green eye. And I have to say, like, I was buying into this setup because I was like, there's something about that guy. I think he might be involved. Like, I thought that he, spoiler alert, listeners, but you know there's going to be spoilers. I thought that he was Don Newman, the artist. Me too, that was my guess. Because Claudia has this phone call with the artist that she idolizes so much. And she's like, I wanted to let you know that I think something's wrong with your statue at the museum. And then they're going to meet in person. I was like, I bet that's the guy with the blue and green eye. And I was wrong. So that was a good red herring. I know. I was I was so bummed when she like saw him. And, and she's like, I recognize this photo from the paper. And I walked over and I was like, wait, it's not the guy. I know. Okay. So good job to whoever wrote this book because we we were into it. You caught us on that but once they've identified the suspects they have a couple of possible leads so there are coins missing i guess i never even mentioned exactly what was stolen there are these like antique coins that have been stolen from the museum so they think that potentially the coins could have been dropped in the donation box at the museum or they think maybe they're at the museum gift shop or that maybe they have been dropped into the fountain in the courtyard and they investigate all three of these leads in very cute ways i thought Cute and direct. I don't want to be, I don't want to say cute in any sort of like 
condescending manner because they yeah. they were direct but I just thought the outcomes of them were cute. So like they ask somebody at the front desk about what happens with the donations at the end of every day and the donations are dumped out every day. So they're like, okay, the coins definitely aren't in there because somebody would have figured it out if the coins are shaken out at the end of every day. And then they disprove their theory about the museum gift shop by going and investigating. And then they they all go to the fountain in the courtyard and they like hunt for them. And there there was one moment where Claudia is like, looking at the fountain and they're all like wishing on coins. And she's like, we all wished, and we probably all wished for the same thing that we would be able to solve the case of the stolen coins. I know that's what I wished for anyway. Like Claudia, honey, I love your resolve to solve this mystery, but I don't think I would have wished for that. She definitely has this like outsized uh, understanding of like how important this is to everyone yeah. in the world because it's important to her which is kind of how you think of things when you're 13 so like for sure that is sort of your your world yeah it's your, very your grandiose to her mm-hmm. and part of what's eating at her about this whole thing is that when she took the kids to the museum one of the things she was most excited about was the fact that they had this exhibit um, of Don Newman sculptures and Don Newman is one of her favorite artists she's been to see his work in New York and there's a statue of his called Daphne actually did she did they go see Daphne when she was with the kids or maybe just she and Stacy went to see it I can't I think she didn't actually see it until she was there with Stacy she went back with Stacy so she's really excited to go see Daphne because she's like Stacy trust me I've seen this statue and it's great but when she gets there it's not quite the way she remembers she's like it feels different to her because I think the it is this idea that you can touch everything. And so she's kind of moving it around and it like sounds different or the weight feels like it's distributed differently. And so she thinks that maybe it's a fraud. So they go straight to the curator, which like you have to respect, like the boldness, really. I I would never. These 13 year old girls have like no fear. They're like, we are going to speak. They're like Karen in their 50s ahead of their time. They're like, I would like to speak to the manager. Thank you. Oh my gosh. That's so true. They're like, we, yes, we, there will be no passing of go. There will be no paying $200. We are going directly to the manager. And this statue is a fraud. It's like healthy entitlement that I'm glad to see modeled for 13 year old girls because like I, at that age, was so afraid to speak up about anything to anyone and like yeah like I mean maybe not in this particular situation but like there should be times that you feel comfortable like going and speaking to whoever's in charge and feeling like your opinion matters yeah I was just intimidated by adults in general and I I think sometimes I'm still a little bit intimidated by adults to be honest and they go straight to see Mr. Snipes And Mr. Snipes is not interested in talking to them at all. He produces the paperwork for them, which proves that the statue that he has is in fact not a fraud. And I love that he like even feels that he has to show them paperwork, like as rude and condescending as he is to them, he he didn't have to do that. Like he didn't have to dig into his files to produce that proof. It's true. No, it's a good point. I just love that he was like such a stereotypical bad guy too. He had, didn't he have like, you know, like a partially bald head, or maybe I made that up, but like his name is Mr. Snipe. Yeah. And like kind of sounds like Severus Snape. And like, it's just, you know, it's it's a whole, it's a vibe. He just had a vibe yeah. about him. Mr. Snipes is a whole vibe. And he just doesn't really want to talk to them. He basically kicks them out of his office, which like, I mean, again, they are being a little bit like Karen's. Like they could have just tried to make an appointment and instead they just basically barge into his office. And he's like, you're wrong. Daphne is real. And that's kind of 
that's kind of all there is to it. So Stacy decides that Mr. Snape's must be the one who is behind the burglaries, especially because they do some very smart research. And I like this detail a lot. They go to the library and they find out all of the other museums that Mr. Snipes has worked at. And they discover that there have been burglaries at every other one. It is interesting. It was definitely one of those moments where it's like, oh, before the internet. Um, right. Claudia stole his resume off his desk, which is like her one yeah. devious move. And then they had a list of everywhere he worked. So they went to the library where Claudia's mom worked. And she helped them look at probably like the microfiche and check the burglaries in all of these past spots. And it was like every single one had a burglary around when he was there. And they were like, we've got them. It's like, we've solved the case. It was very, it was a very exciting moment in the book. Yeah, they were very excited about it. And then it feels like things just start to move really fast after that. Claudia starts to like reflect more on the day that she was at the museum. And I'm going to just read this sort of long excerpt because I feel like it's where things really start to come to fall into place for her. She thinks or she reflects. I concentrated on the image of that room with the broken case. I made myself look at it again. I tried to picture it exactly. Remember the glass case that had been broken into? The one that used to have the coins in it? Well, here's the thing. I was trying to remember exactly how it looked and I realized something. I saw broken glass covering the inside of the case. If somebody had broken the case to steal the coins, the glass would have sprinkled all over the coins. Then where the thief picked them up, there would have been little round bare spots where the coins had been. Do you see what I mean? But there weren't any bare spots. So that means somebody must have taken the coins before the glass was broken. Somebody who had the key, like maybe the curator. Anyway, the thief must have broken the glass after he took the coins to make it look like a robbery by somebody who didn't have a key. But it was an inside job. I'm sure of it. And this is a detail that I remembered like it was yesterday. Like, Interesting. I, when I read this as like a 10-year-old, I thought that was so clever. This blew my mind. This was just like such incredible Sherlock Holmes levels of deduction and observation. And yeah, reading it as an adult now, it's like, obviously, the authorities would immediately notice such a thing and not rely on a person, one 13-year-old's memory from far away. But I was blown away by this twist and this revelation and this clue falling into place. Maybe that's when I became addicted to like the thrill of the the clue making sense. I was going to say, I like the idea that like, in that moment, you thought to yourself, I will write thrillers. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely wasn't that far along, but it is very possible that, yes, I got some faint, you know, early glimmerings of an addiction to, you know, deduction and reveals. <laughs> yeah, that was the moment everything changed. <laughs> so, yeah, they become, they sort of double down on this theory that Mr. Snipes is behind the robbery and Claudia becomes even more obsessed with the mystery. It's really all she can think about. She's consumed by it. And she does what any 13 year old, 12 year old would do in 1993. And she calls information. <laughs> so great. So great. Remember information? Like I don't, I, now we just Google, but information was a thing. And she just decides that she's going to get in touch with Don Newman directly because she is very concerned that there is this thief on the loose in the museum and she doesn't want anything to happen to his statues. And you have to appreciate the commitment. But I have to believe that if Don Newman is really a famous artist, he would he would be unlisted in he some would not way, be right? Like, you can't true, just call him on information. It's true. It, it seems really unlikely. Although who knows? Like I wasn't calling people in 1993. So who knows what names were to be found in the white pages? 
but it is it is another glorious example of like her having that healthy sense of entitlement and her having a ton of agency where again like nothing happens to her everything that happens is from her own doing and her pushing the plot along which is good storytelling and in this case you kind of skipped over a very minor detail which is that someone happens to learn that the night of like the closing reception for the party is, is when they're going to relax right. security again because nothing's happened in a week and so, so she fine. gets very concerned she's like this is when they're going to sneak the coins whoever whoever stacks them in the museum is going to sneak them out that night so I have to tell Don and she's just like yeah walks over to a phone and does it and actually I would say everything that happened from then on out Felt like a little inappropriate to 2021 ears. Did you experience that? Yeah, I mean, there's a weird thing throughout the series that we've talked about on previous episodes. There's just a general weirdness in the way that teen girls often relate to men in the series. Is that what you're getting at? That's exactly what I'm getting at. Not in any like outright way. Right. But it just feels like there's... And, and I don't know if it's because they did bring in these other writers and maybe they they never like really talked about how they wanted to portray these relationships. But it feels like anytime they bring in outside adults that like aren't parents that we've gotten to know already in other books, there's just, there's like an air of inappropriateness or mm -hmm. just like discomfort. There's a little bit of an ick factor and it's hard to put your finger on. Yeah, yeah. And like nothing actually inappropriate ever happens. But there is this weird thing where he is immediately treating her like a fellow adult, even though she's a 13 year old girl. And, you know, he's nice. And he mentions his kids and he invites her to this party. And she's like, Oh, I don't know if he can go. And only then is he like, Well, you can bring your parents. But like, mm. should be really inviting a 13 year old girl. And then as soon as they're at the party, I'm skipping ahead, but when they are at the party, they're sort of like left alone together. And she's like, come on, let's go see the sculpture now together. And they're like ducking into hallways. And like, it just did not sound entirely great to 2021 ears. And something I was thinking about throughout is like, why wasn't, why didn't they just make the, the uh, artist a woman? I feel like especially back in that time when we all failed the test of like, I cannot operate on that son or I cannot operate on that boy. He's my son. Like we all just assumed everyone having an interesting job was a man. Maybe it wasn't even in their sort of worldview yet, but like, wouldn't she have been so much more enamored of like a female artist anyway, like herself? That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why, why not. And the whole, like just the whole dynamic with Don Newman talking to Claudia a lot about his kids. I mean, it, it brings us back to like, the babysitting of it all like I sort of laughed at the fact that when he's at when she's asking him about why the statue feels different to her than it did when she saw it in New York he was like oh it's because I put compartments in it because you know my kids love to play with my statues I was like okay even the like world-renowned artist has to be like sort of obsessed with babysitting and children but then she has this weird conversation with him at the party because yes to your point he invites her to this very adult party that we read in the beginning of the book, she knows that she really has no business going to. And they're making small talk as if they are adults. And she's like, oh, you must be a wonderful father. Just like strange. And creepy. Parents, it's so creepy. And like her parents are just not, I think they bring her, but 
her dad, I think, is talking to somebody else when she's talking to Don. Yeah, he's like, oh, I see my friends over there. Are you okay? <laughs> and like, off he goes. <laughs> so weird. Off he goes, leaving her with this adult man that she's never met before. Yeah, it's so weird. It's like, it's like whoever wrote this book and maybe some of these other later books in the series, because I don't think it happens as much in the books Anne M. Martin wrote. I think mm. she wrote the first like 35, you know. <laughs> Just wow. 35. She just wrote 35 and then she started handing them off. But I do think it's it's almost like when the series started to get like too big, it's like they lost control of these weird dynamics. It's almost like they've never talked to kids before or never like observed the way kids relate to adults. It's strange. It is so weird. I mean, I remember reading it and just thinking these girls were so old and they were teenagers yeah. and like reading it now, it's like a 13 year old running around. And I actually really loved, I really liked the TV show that was on what Netflix uh, a year or two ago. So good, and so good. It was so great. And the girls actually looked 13. And so similarly, it was like, oh, they're like adorable little girls, like learning about things for the first time and having crushes and boyfriends. And Marianne's the only one with a steady boyfriend, like they're 13. And so, yeah, like reading these as a kid, it didn't seem weird at all that they would find themselves in these adult situations because they're also the ones like caring for kids, taking them to the hospital if need be, like they're so responsible. And then just reading this now, it was like, no, this is, this is weird. Like they're children, even though they watch other children, like people shouldn't be pretending they're adults. And I'm sure a lot of it was like, we just weren't thinking about things like more gender representation and why is everyone with any power in this book a man Mr. Snipes and Don Newman and like there just wasn't the same thought of it and it was you know progressive in other ways it had a diverse cast so maybe not always handled so well but it is it was just very strange that as soon as like as soon as Don Newman the person was introduced as a character I was like this feels a little squicky yeah, he's like, let's go look at my statue alone, shall we? Yeah. It's weird. Off it's we weird. go in the dark. Yeah, I agree. So in the end, the girls do solve the mystery because they see a custodian like wheeling the statue away. And let me I'll just I'll just read it, everybody, so that we're all clear on what happens. So this is like one of the last little sections of the book. Major spoilers. Sorry. Major spoilers. If you don't want to be spoiled on Babysitter's Club Mystery Number 11, Claudia and the Mystery at the Museum, turn this off right now. But come back because <laughs> we're going to talk about other books after. <laughs> the trustees didn't count on Mr. Will Series, though. That was the custodian's name. Only he wasn't really a custodian. <laughs> he was a thief who had been planning this robbery since before the museum opened. His plan was basically a good one, too. First, he set off the fire alarm as a distraction. Then he did, as I had guessed, steal the coins by using his key to open the case. Yeah, that clue that, that really blew your mind, Andrea. It, it really, that's, that's what really uh, got things going here. Mm -hmm. After that, he broke the case to cover up the evidence, which set off the burglar alarm. In the confusion that followed, he dumped the coins into his bucket. Later, he stashed them in Don's sculpture. His only problem came when, after the robbery, the museum tightened security and posted guards 24 hours a day. He didn't get a chance to retrieve the coins until the night of the party when the security was relaxed. Again, weird decision. He had made arrangements to sell the coins to a museum in Switzerland, and he was hoping to retire on the money he would make. So Will Series, he's the culprit. All along. They had a lot of things right. They had a lot of things right. They knew it was an inside job. She knew something was funny about the weird compartments in the statue, even though Don Newman made them because he wants to play with his children 
in the world of the babysitters, they were close. They were close, but they also were wrong about Mr. Snipes because Mr. Snipes was not only not the burglar, but he was brought into the Stony Brook Museum because he has such a history of protecting museums from burglaries. So they had it backwards. It's, yeah. I mean, that's some like classic storytelling right there. You've got like the, you know, your double reveal, you've got like your false opponent ally who seems like a bad guy, but is actually out there to help you. We, we learned that the green eyed blue eye guy was actually like a protection unit or something or a private investigator oh, or yeah. something, yeah. which was great. I mean, it did, it, it tied it all up. It's just, I don't know. I hate when people do this about mysteries. And so I'm going to do it about this one and, and hate myself for it. But like, what kind of museum doesn't just have a security camera <laughs> or a security person in every room? Like, show me that museum. Like, yeah, I hate to do this because you know what? It's really hard to make a mystery that works on every level. And like, there's always obvious things you need to find workarounds for. But, but yeah, I would, I still was like, you know what? Babysitter's Club, like you get an A from me for your putting together your handling of a mystery in three acts with traditional storytelling pacing like great yeah I thought it was fun like mm -hmm. I want to do more of these mysteries in the future I had a good time with it it made me remember why I loved mysteries so much when I was a kid there was just something so special about like this about the discovery of a mystery I think especially when you're growing up and you haven't already experienced a lot of the like hallmarks of mystery writing it's just like everything is a surprise. <laughs> no, it's true. You're like, another twist. Whereas like now we're so yeah. jaded as adults and we're like, come on, it's been too many pages without a huge reveal or twist. But like, yeah, I think it was so, I don't know, fun and charming as a kid to be reading this book with like this clear question at the beginning and this clear stated goal, as I said, of like, we need to solve this mystery. We gotta solve this mystery. Have they solved the mystery yet? Like it just makes for a very like, fun and quick moving, very fun and quick moving like reading experience. Yeah, and even though, like, the solution to the mystery wasn't anything groundbreaking, like, we kind of always knew it was an inside job. It was sort of just a matter of time to figure out who it was. Yeah, I, I kind of thought that it was maybe the the artist who was – I thought I thought Don Newman was, as I mentioned, the mysterious man with the blue eye and the green eye, and that maybe he was, like – I don't know, he had some ulterior motive to steal the coins. But I still felt like it was the surprise of it being this man who we hadn't – encountered before like it was it was enough of a twist that I was like ooh, interesting like, yeah I think if I'd read it when I was a kid I would have I would have thought that that was intrigue no truly it was really I mean it's not you know Hitchcockian levels but like she did mention the janitor when she was sort of glancing around that first time then we all forgot about him but it was a callback it was seated effectively the way that he did like steal the coins and then he couldn't get them out and they were in his bucket it was all pretty clever yeah, I just thought it had a lot of like storytelling fun. And I would also say this actually really surprised me. I thought because it's like not a high stakes, like no one's life is in danger, like really the stakes are like, you know, we want the museum to stay open and we like Don Newman and we don't want, you know, this to be a failure. It's really the whole stakes. Like no one's life is in danger. And that's like a challenge when I'm writing my mysteries. Like there needs to for the for the person investigating, like they need to be personally invested in, there needs to be high stakes, like I need to solve this or else, not just because I told the rest of the club that we would solve it. So given that, I thought it was going to be a reveal that just like, oh, and we figured it out and like hand claps and it would end. But there was actually quite an exciting scene, like an action yeah. movie scene where she's like sneaking around the museum with Don and, and she like grabs him and like pulls him into a dark corner when somebody walks by, which feels a little wrong now but and then you know the the 
janitor with a bucket notices them and somebody jumps on someone and someone jumps on top of them and there's this like crazy scene and she feels like her life is in danger for a second and it was quite an exciting action sequence for babysitters club i was like bravo yeah and then she's made a trustee of the museum yes it's her dream and she gets the like yeah that was seated at the beginning so that she dreamed of someday showing her work there and now she gets to like help curate um a like student artwork exhibit which is, which is really satisfying as well. Yeah, I love that detail. So it sounds to me like this held up for you for the most part. Is that fair to say? It did. I really don't know what the B-plot was doing there. And if it were up to me, I would just, just slice that all out. So it would probably be, yeah, you know, 25 to 30% shorter. But as a reading experience and as a mystery following like a very traditional whodunit formula, I thought it was great. Yeah, what about the babysitters themselves? Like, did just reading about the babysitters again bring you back to like a happy place or were you disappointed by just like the whole dynamic like I just sort of on a broader scale how did it hold up it was interesting to revisit the club because I mean I feel like I remember them like the back of my hand because every time you read the babysitter's club book it goes into deep descriptions of each one and then I, I knew chapter that was two true. always chapter two I knew it was true but reading it again and you hear about every single one of Christie's siblings and half siblings and her stepdad and her whatever and and you know Mallory too she's got seven siblings and we learn about every single one there was so much sort of like superfluous detail that did not feed into the rest of the book at all like I still don't remember who Shannon Kirkborn is or why she was there she was like the one babysitter's club meeting who got like no ink it was like and then we added one more she has brown hair anyway like <laughs> Shannon back to the rest of back us back to the important <laughs> ones back to the crew so I was sort of taken aback, even though I knew it was coming by like how much description we get to people who don't have a ton of time on the page, especially in this story. So I feel like I didn't totally see their dynamics. But I don't know, hearing about it through Claudia's perspective, I thought it was just really sweet how everyone did like support each other. And they have like a pizza toast tradition. And everyone's like very supportive of Claudia when she has this good idea. No one's like surprised that it's her idea. Like they're just never there really wasn't instances of anyone being mean to each other. And like for a group of 13 year old girls, that's like a little bit radical, right? But they're also supportive. And granted, this is not a book that was about their interpersonal conflict. And I'm sure it comes up in other ones. But yeah, it was just kind of lovely reading about this group of girls. And it was not about boys. It was not about anyone being mean to anyone else. It was just about them like working together and like combining their strengths to solve a mystery. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was it was lovely in that way. So other than Claudia and the mystery at the museum, you know it's coming because you're a second timer on the show. What have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? So many great books. If you like Whodunit, In My Dreams I Hold a Knife by Ashley Winstead. It is out August 3rd, 2021. Um, it's a really terrific sort of, I know what you did last summer, Whodunit, about a group of um, college friends who sort of their queen bee was, found murdered right before graduation and 10 years later at the reunion it's all coming to a head which reminds me another whodunit I really enjoyed with a very similar premise but a very different book is the girls are also nice here which is about um some former high schoolers who actually were quite mean girls in different ways but one of them had a, had wound up dead and then a reunion um it comes to a head and, and you know accusations fly and the truth finally comes out so those are two very fun whodunits 
I'm reading The Other Black Girl right now by Zakia Delilah Harris, which is fantastic and so thought-provoking and just like a very breezy, fun read. And what else? I'm always like sort of reading in the future and then confused about what's coming out when because I read things so long before they come up. Uh, I also really like Just One Look by Lindsay Cameron, which is a thriller that recently came out um, about a woman who sort of becomes obsessed with a seemingly perfect man. Um, she's related, she stumbles upon through work. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun and it sort of has this you feeling of like you're rooting for someone even as you watch them sort of self-destruct and be, you know, somewhere in like that stalker fiction uh that's that stalker fiction sort of continuum. So that's another really fun thriller if you like psychological, psychological mysteries and thrillers. Ooh, lots of good ones to add to your TBRs listeners. I will include links to all of them in the show notes for this episode. And Andrea, you have a new book out too. Is there anything you want to tell us about We Were Never Here? Absolutely. So We Were Never Here is my third book and my first thriller that's not also a murder mystery. So in this book, you know exactly who done it because it's about two globe-trotting best friends who, while on vacation together in Chile, sort of band together to kill a backpacker in self-defense. And because of them being out of the country, because of them um, not wanting to be, you know, held there or or anything terrible happening, they decide to bury the body and fly home. And so that's how the book begins. And so it's about sort of the walls closing in on them as they sort of face what they've done and continue evading law enforcement and also sort of how their friendship is stretched to the limit uh, vis-a-vis this trauma bond and what they've done together. So it's very, um, it's fast-paced and it's twisty and it's kind of um, claustrophobic. And it's also, you know, globetrotting and takes us all over the globe. So hopefully it's like a really fun summer read for people, especially those who maybe miss, um, you know, being on foreign lands and that feeling of like, Anything could happen here, even the horrible things that we don't want to think about. That sounds really good. I can't believe that last time we talked, you were still between your first and your second book. And now you are talking about your third book. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, thank you. It's been it's been quite a wild run. And yeah, so much has happened for both of us. You're now in Philly and and this podcast is so grown up and sounding so great. So yeah, it's been And I'm glad that we're sort of reconnecting a couple of books later. Yeah, this is so fun. Listeners, I'll also include links to Andrea's books in the show notes if you want to go check them out. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me again. I hope that we can reconnect a third and a fourth and a fifth time in the future. Absolutely. I can't wait to read more good books with you. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Bye. Thanks, Ellie. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.